I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which deconstructs genre and narrative and finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. When you work in intensive care, your day-to-day life is about embracing what you can't change. And ultimately, I love my job. And that means that I have to be exposed to these things which are often very sad and traumatic. Although it's a place very few people would like to end up, our obsession with the drama of a hospital is chronicled in so many enduring and successful television shows that have kept us captivated for years, and in some cases, decades. You've got all 22 series of Holby City still going strong since it first aired in the late 90s, the 15 years plus of Grey's Anatomy, and the current title holder for longest-running medical drama, Casualty, that's been going incredibly since 1986. But with all of these series, it's hard for the writers to ever truly capture what life is like for the staff that work tirelessly to heal us. That's where Dr. Aoife Abbey comes in. She's the author of Seven Signs of Life, stories from an intensive care doctor. Starting as the anonymous author of the blog, The Secret Doctor, Aoife used writing to express how she felt about the many emotional experiences and relationships she was faced with in her work. There's so much to learn from Dr. Abbey, our guest today. So scrub up and let's dive in. one, the most difficult conversations. Often in hospitals, particularly intensive care wards, even the most basic questions come with a host of caveats, assumptions, and conditions. What on the surface may appear to be basic yes or no answers are rarely that simple. Taking a holistic view of your story can help create a believable and cohesive world. It allows you to weave every aspect together seamlessly. That same holistic approach is critical in hospitals too. It's never simply just about the medicine. Medicine is more than people think it is. So it is just about the medicine, but people don't realise that the medicine is the whole person sometimes. I don't think that medicine is just science. It is science, but it's science and people and science and psychology and science and individuals. So in that context, what I would say is it's not just about the procedural availability of you being there as an example of a pathology. I don't think that medicine should separate the pathology from the person. That's fascinating. Mm-hmm. So you, you've talked um, in the past about what the role of being a doctor um, has had on you and the impact that it's had um, on you. Could we talk about this this phrase of the bedside manner? And I'm fascinated with how how do you go about communicating something that's potentially a complex from a scientific or medical perspective and be potentially very distressing to someone that doesn't have a the training to necessarily understand what you're saying but be the emotional capability of processing it i i cannot get my head around what that must be like i mean the bedside manner we talk about it as if it's this this, this tiniest thing but it's so utterly critical that must be a huge part of your job so in the context which i work which is a place where patients are by definition critically unwell it is very difficult because if i am in a situation where a patient is able to communicate with me and that is not incredibly common then they are invariably in a position where they are vulnerable and in some ways it doesn't matter how much i set out to try and recognize that power differential between us and try and compensate for it they are always the more vulnerable party And it's difficult to have these conversations I'm having about outcomes and what is important to a person and what risks they're willing to accept any time. But when you're having it with a patient who's in a hospital bed, you know, hooked up to several lines and machines and unwell, it is harder. 
And then you have the situation where a patient isn't able to communicate with me. And in that circumstance, you try and glean some sort of understanding about who that person is by speaking to the family. And in that case, you're trying to balance something else. You're trying to use the family to understand who that person is so that you can attempt to have that person in the room in a kind of pseudo way. But then I'm also trying not to place too much burden on the family because ultimately, you know, like unless somebody has a lasting power of attorney for health, nobody can actually make a decision for another adult. What we're doing is including the voices of persons who are important to the patient in the process of making the best interest decision. That's how it works in the UK anyway. One of the things that I've noticed is that often when we see these kind of stories portrayed in the media or books, what they show are discussions about whether or not somebody is going to survive. But they're not really the most difficult conversations. If I actually know that somebody is going to die, yes, that can be a difficult conversation. But I will say it and I'll be clear. The harder conversations are another type that revolve around this sort of conditional probability. So A or B might happen. But if B happens, then C might happen. And maybe you're a person that might tolerate the risk of B happening, but not C. And ultimately, there's uncertainty because often I don't know what group somebody's going to end up in. So, for example, I work in a trauma centre and we get a lot of people with head injuries. And that might be because they've fallen or been in a car accident or assaulted. And often these people have a kind of damage to their brain tissue that doesn't require a specific surgery at the outset. So what we do is we put them in a medically induced coma and we try and keep the brain tissue as safe as possible by controlling different parameters to stop the brain swelling. Because the skull is like this fixed box and if your brain expands, there isn't anywhere really for it to go. And sometimes people get better without further treatment and sometimes they don't. So their brain continues to get very swollen. And we talk about doing something where a neurosurgeon comes and takes off a part of the skull and that's called a decompressive craniectomy. So if I was to try and explain this procedure to a family, what I would tell them was that we were offering this procedure because we wanted to try and save a life. And when I say life in this instance, I mean that we're literally doing it to try and keep a person's body from dying, which is one thing. But then I tell them that in the group of people who have this procedure compared to the group who don't, 22% more people will survive ultimately. But of those survivors, of those 22%, 13% will be independent at home a year down the line, which means able to be independent in their houses for up to eight hours at a time. And then the other 9% will remain very dependent on others for all aspects of their care. So you're asking people to contemplate really long term complex outcomes and do it at a time when they're not prepared. And let's not forget that ultimately the person that needs to actually accept the outcome isn't me or anybody else, but the patient. So that sounds like, if I, if I understand you correctly, that sounds like the, people are having to separate the immediacy of trying to save a life with the long-term pondering and wondering of what that life might be like after the initial rescue has taken place because that there's a distinct possibility that that person is not going to go back and be living the same life that they had before um, whatever happened to them happened is that right absolutely often what we're trying to help people come on board with is trying to help us come to a conclusion about what is the least worst option here you know it's like if you're talking to someone who has a 
condition, which is, say, for example, terminal, there is a very clear difference between the question, do you want to live, which for many people is yes, and then the reality, which is, I'm sorry you're dying, what is important to you now that you're dying? You know, so that that feeds into, say, for example, discussions about um, cardiopulmonary resuscitation, CPR, that, you know, if you're to say that, well, I wouldn't want CPR if my heart stopped, that's not the same as saying you want to die. You're just saying that if I'm in a situation where my heart stops, then this is what is important to me at that time. Chapter two, sparking a conversation. Across all art forms, storytellers have always tackled the big issues of the day, and we have a responsibility to do it respectfully and sensitively. The Netflix original 13 Reasons Why, for instance, talks about teenage suicide and depression, and as a result offers crisis support and resources for anyone affected by issues on the show. Some issues, however, have remained in the shadows for too long, yet sometimes all it takes is the spark of a story to bring them to the fore. It's the reason Aoife started her anonymous blog. So I wrote an anonymous blog for uh, the British Medical Association as the secret doctor. And the, the anon- anonymous aspect of that blog was more just about focusing not on me, but on the on the writing and the topic. So that it wasn't like so that people could have discussions, people being the readership of the British Medical Association could have discussions about things that affected people without focusing on me as a person. Um, so I started writing that and I think it became obvious to me that the things that I was reflecting on when I came home from work in my head were things that were in relation to emotion. So they was kind of the flag for me to realise that this is something important or significant. And I think when it came to writing a book, it just felt like any other way that I could organise these experiences wouldn't be right. You know, when you think about how you might do it in terms of time or like I know people write kind of diaries and things. I felt like the actually the kind of skeleton that was holding all these together the structure was the emotion so it just felt like that was the natural way to do it we're we're having at the moment um our own sort of emotional um association with medicine and with science and in particular with um the national health service we those of us that tune in get a daily science lesson um at five o'clock from some incredibly highly qualified Um, people for someone like myself that doesn't have a medical background that that's been fascinating the whole narrative of what's happening right now everything from the people that work in the national health service the equipment that the national health services use we're examining or re-examining our own emotional relationship with medicine and with the national health um, service but that's from the outside looking in from the inside dealing with what you're dealing with on a on a very regular basis has that surprised you the level of support and heartfelt association that people have with this institution that perhaps we've taken for granted in the past is that something that that surprised you I think it was I don't know if pleasant is the right word because none of this has been pleasant but I think it was a silver lining perhaps I think one thing that I realized when I when this when the book that I wrote was published and I was speaking to people on the radio and things, I began to realize actually almost everybody I spoke to had a connection to intensive care or to somebody being ill in their lives um, that was very meaningful to them. Um, and I was surprised by how much everybody had been impacted um, at some point in their lives. And I think what this 
situation the pandemic has done is it's everybody's experiencing this at the same time so they're being exposed to the fear and um to the possibility that this might be them or just to the possibility that these difficult situations exist and to the to the fact that intensive care exists and there's different types of treatments that you can get in hospital i think it's kind of it's come as a result of the collective exposure which ultimately i hope will end up being a good thing because i think people will always be benefited by being informed Mm. like you my own mother was a nurse um she was a nurse for 40 years uh, and worked in the it worked in accident and emergency she worked on the wards and then in the latter part of her career she was a district nurse and I always remember growing up and we would talk about our day how was your day at school and you'd ask your dad how was your day at work and it was it was always fascinating mum would be very very interested in in what had gone on and she would be very patient you know as dad talked about you know some boss that he didn't like or some project that was going wrong and then when it was what about you mum and you know quite routinely and and more often than than I think is healthy she would say yeah sadly we lost a patient today or something like that and just the just the simplicity with which she said something so important and so tragic immediately made you think oh well actually I don't know why I'm getting upset about the fact that someone had stole my lunch money or my ball or you know dad's project isn't going well because actually that's what really matters and then she would say no 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 it's fine you know tell me tell me again about about your about your day and I I always admired that in her I always thought it was staggering because clearly the pressures of the job were great and and I that's why I'm fascinated by your own writing is that you're deliberately embracing that emotional um upheaval almost as if almost as if you're that's how you're coping with it you talked about flags and and and, and is that you sort of understanding that it's getting to a stage where this is unhealthy now and trying to understand why that's happening. Is that what, is that what you're doing? Yeah. I mean, I think when you work in intensive care, your day to day life is about embracing what you can't change. And ultimately I love my job. And that means that I have to be exposed to these things, which are often very sad and traumatic. And I, I don't want to be somebody who's living my life, labeling all these things as terrible things. And then there's a converse of that where you still have to recognize that you do have to protect yourself to a certain amount. Um, so it's a balance between embracing what is just real in the world. You know, what, what is part of life? I can't, you know, all this, the death is often very sad, but it is part of life and I have a role to play and I'll play it. Yeah, I mean, I just, I, I don't see the value in kind of pretending that that's not the case. Mm. A friend of mine, in fact, um, one of my closest friends who I've known for many, many years, came to medicine um, much later than would be conventional um, for a lot of medical students. He became a doctor in his early 40s um, after having had a career that had nothing to do with medicine. One of the bravest things I've ever seen anybody go through, not just to put yourself in that position with people who are 20 odd years younger than you, but also the demands um, both you know physically and emotionally of that much learning and that much um processing the thing that i've been surprised by though is something that i don't know whether you experience or everyone experiences this is the amount of times he's been had to move around the country as a result of the the job that seems to happen for you know the best part of a decade is that is that right yeah so i think one of the things that's 
is very specific to the training of junior doctors is that we move around a lot so you know I could probably count the number of jobs I had if I had a minute but like in the first you know nine years of my career I've probably been to 10 different hospitals and you know had 15 or more different jobs all for kind of four months six month periods and that is very difficult because every time you're going you're entering a team and you're trying to build up new support mechanisms I was lucky in that I was always within the West Midlands but you know the, the West Midlands is, is a large area but yeah it is it's a thing and I you know I think in, in any other situation if I walked into an interview and said you know I've been a doctor for nine years and I've had 15 20 jobs they'd say you know what's wrong with you but this is really just I guess it's how we train and it has its benefits and that you know you get to see different things in different ways that people um, manage things different systems how different hospitals work so in the end I think it's probably okay but it, it can be psychologically it can be very difficult yeah Chapter 3 Closer to Reality By now you're probably itching to pen the next hit medical drama drawing inspiration from Aoife's wonderful insights. But as she says, real life isn't like the movies. Often, even our most beloved shows get it wrong. They give audiences false expectations or dramatise events just a little too much. So maybe it's time to rethink the way we portray medicine on television and in literature. What advice does Aoife have for us? One of the most important things is that if you're going to write a story about that has a medical theme, so for example... You know, if you're a soap and you're portraying a situation where a patient's, you know, in a coma and doctors are talking about withdrawing life-sustaining treatment, which is kind of a frequent thing that they show, you have to make sure that, first of all, I think that you get the legal concepts correct. You know, because if I had a pound for every time I had seen somebody say, oh, you know, you have to sign so we can withdraw this treatment. It doesn't happen in the UK, you know, nobody... Unless you have a legal power of attorney, you cannot make a decision for another adult. And them kind of things, I think, are massively important because I think the ability of mainstream media to educate the public on public health and medical matters is huge. So that's one thing I think you need to do the research and get, get, the, get the legal aspects right. And then I think it's about asking people who've been in that situation, you know, about taking advice from patient groups you know, and taking advice from people who've been through that kind of thing so that you're accurately reflecting what they're, what's happening, you know. And then I guess not being afraid to demonstrate what's really there. You know, I think sometimes we can try to put a sheen on aspects of death because we want to make it beautiful, more obviously beautiful. Whereas the best descriptions of dying and death that I've read have been beautiful because they're unapologetically clear about the ugliness of of death sometimes that's fascinating so we 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 almost want to romanticize it and and tell it in a way that makes it more acceptable because the reality is probably very hard for us to process whereas if we embrace the reality and tell it honestly that creates its own beauty is that fair yes i think so i mean one of the things I think that's been hardest to deal with in this whole pandemic situation is the way that we've been forced to separate people from the death of their loved ones. You know, for the first part of my career, I've always been somebody who's wanted to help people 
kind of have some sort of presence that they're comfortable with when somebody they love is dying and you know for some they won't want to come anywhere near them and and, and that's fine everybody gets to make their own decisions but it's an option and you get to um, kind of open up that to them and give them some sort of control over the process but what's happened in this situation is we've gone back to like what I must imagine it must have been like decades ago where people went into hospital and then you call the relatives and you know you explain to them they're dying and then that's it like they can't come and I think that has been a massive implication um, of this pandemic and I'm not even sure what the outcomes the long-term effect of that is going to be on people I think it might be quite significant. Uh, yes I, I think that's inevitable and, and it does it does take you back in in time almost doesn't it um and the, this new bizarre utterly tragic and horrific concept of having a wake or a funeral via video conference is just i mean the the other day somebody said look i can't i can't attend the meeting i've got a, a zoom wake to go mm. to and i was like that's just incomprehensible like let's please god let that not become a thing no that, yeah that, but, but it is to your yeah. point that's what we're dealing with yeah i mean like you know i'm being Irish I you know we have a culture where people and presence around death is a massive part of our culture and I thankfully have not had to experience anybody close to me die during this pandemic honestly I do not know how I would have coped if I had to have that experience death in that way it's um I lost a uh, a contact recently um a wonderful um woman who passed away uh, due to complications with her um her cancer had returned and and it happened very very quickly and that was it done and and ordinarily that would have been you know that sort of that classic she wasn't irish but if you think about uh, i'm from a large very large irish family and when it, when it gets together it's it's you know it's big and it's um it's boozy and it's fu- you know it's fun and i remember my own grand's funeral there were so many people it was it was weird because it was january the 2nd like it was a you know what what are you doing on you know the first day after a new year burying um somebody but at least we got to be together mm, whereas yeah. you know now what's happening is that that support that emotional support structure that that families and loved ones create mm. at a time of loss you know that was it my contact that was it gone very small service and then all the tributes are online and you think i'm finding that bizarre to try, mm. I, can, I can't get any emotional support from that it's it's weird isn't it yeah absolutely um in terms of your own writing are you working on anything new at the moment is there going to be a a, a sequel to seven signs mm-hmm. of life um i don't know i mean i'm not working on anything specifically at the moment you know this book is kind of the product of experiences that I had over the first kind of seven years of my career and now being qualified nine years I've just become a consultant um, at the beginning of April so no doubt I will have a whole heap of new experiences but um, definitely no plans specific plans yet I kind of I think there's something about medical writing that makes me feel like you have to wait for it to happen rather than make it happen I think it's I don't know some sort of a odd moral obligation not to try and kind of construct things for the sake of constructing them i think that's good advice for us all dr eva abby thank you so much for your time i really appreciate it a massive thank you then to eva abby for joining me on the podcast and to recap what have we learned in hospitals simple decisions are often hard to make because of the baggage that they come with patient might survive but what will their quality of life be like Sometimes it's the most obvious conundrums that lead to the unravelling of the deepest plot points. 
In the same way that it's never just about the medicine, you need to see all aspects of your story as one part of a whole. They all need to be married together. It's critical in creating a believable world. Aoife's anonymous blog and subsequent book sparked an important conversation. Is there a topic or subject close to your heart that isn't being talked about enough? And if there is, then why not write it? Real life medicine isn't like the movies, and when we're watching a medical drama, as audiences, we know when it's all become a bit far-fetched. When you're setting out to write, try to keep the reality in check, while still making a compelling story. It might be more difficult, but it will be worth it. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood, and if you'd like to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine. New episodes release weekly. Please like us and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. Starting next week, we'll be devoting two back-to-back shows to issues relating to race, slavery, and the Black Lives Matter movement. First up is UK-based novelist and academic, Professor Sunny Singh. We shouldn't wait for black men and women dying and being murdered brutally in order to suddenly decide we are going to stand in solidarity and publish more more stories that may humanise black women. Goodbye for now. Stay safe and keep writing.